welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Another week on the road, hopefully to resolve a long-pending removal defense case. And then it's off to Detroit for the FBA Immigration Law Section Annual Conference to speak with and learn from some wonderful people. But now... Before we get to the cases, it appears that that footnote from the Supreme Court's Borden decision last term, episode 59 of the pod, has wreaked some havoc, resulting in the en banc Ninth Circuit deciding in U.S. v. Bagay that the crime of violence definition for sentence enhancement purposes includes criminal acts that can be committed recklessly, where the recklessness definition is higher than, quote, ordinary recklessness, end quote. Now, the analysis appears heavily state and statute-specific. Here it was federal second-degree murder, after all. But it's certainly a chip in what was before a fairly non-citizen-friendly crime of violence definition from the Supremes last term. So check out the decision, if only to fend off expansive interpretations, by DHS. And if you're a DHS listener, well, discretion comes in many forms, and cases can be hard to locate. Here's what we've got this week. First up is Udo v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on May 4th, 2022. May the 4th be with you. A joke I won't stop saying for as long as this podcast exists and decisions are published on May 4th. Check me on it next year. And so, this decision is about credibility. Mr. Udo came to the United States and applied for asylum, testifying in immigration court that he is a gay man from Nigeria. He also testified that, quote, being gay is a crime in Nigeria, punishable by over 10 years in prison, end quote. He testified that in 2015, he and his boyfriend were caught having sex in a hotel, restrained, and then were beaten for hours by local, quote, community security, end quote, members. After recovering in a distant town, Mr. Udo was informed by his mother that police had been looking for him and that village leaders had told her that he needed to be put to death. He fled to the United States. 
In immigration court, he submitted substantial evidence, including, most importantly, a, quote, excommunication notice from the Council of Traditional Rulers of Mr. Udo's Nigerian community, stating that he is subject to execution for being gay, end quote. He also submitted corroborating affidavits from his family members. But on cross-examination, DHS presented evidence to show that the hotel Mr. Udo mentioned didn't exist. Mr. Udo explained that, quote, he referred to the Sheridan Hotel instead of the Sinadi Hotel, end quote, which apparently does exist, quote, because the Sheridan was a more recognizable landmark, end quote. He also said he was afraid in immigration court. The immigration judge found Mr. Udo not credible due to the hotel thing, and also because Mr. Udo was, quote, often unresponsive and inconsistent in his testimony, end quote. The IJ went so far as to make a frivolous asylum finding, holding that Mr. Udo fabricated a material aspect of his claim, thereby barring him from all immigration relief forever. The BIA affirmed. Before the Ninth Circuit, Mr. Udo brought narrow challenges, and the Ninth Circuit addressed them. First, whether notwithstanding the adverse credibility finding, the agency gave proper consideration to Mr. Udo's Convention Against Torture claim. The Ninth Circuit held that the agency did not. See, an adverse credibility finding, while certainly a big problem, is not necessarily dispositive for cat protection, because that protection is mandatory if established by other evidence. And here that was the case. Regardless of whether the hotel incident occurred, quote, the excommunication notice, combined with his family's letters and affidavits, leave no doubt that Mr. Udo is gay and was subjected to violent attacks in Nigeria on the basis of his sexuality, end quote. The IJ and the BIA had to consider that evidence and explain why it didn't indicate that Mr. Udo would more likely than not be tortured if the agency was going to deny cat protection. But the IJ and the BIA barely mentioned the evidence. While the agency doesn't have to mention all evidence to deny in all cases, it definitely has to deal with highly probative material evidence such as this. And if the IJ was going to discount the notice or the affidavits, as an IJ might do with an adverse credibility finding, the IJ needed to explain why. None of that happened here, so the Ninth Circuit remanded. The Ninth Circuit then held that the IJ and the BIA also erred in making a frivolous asylum finding. And that's because even if the adverse credibility finding is going to stand, and Mr. Udo appears not to have challenged it, the evidence here was insufficient to conclude that Mr. Udo, quote, had deliberately fabricated a material element of his asylum application, namely the location of where his alleged past persecution occurred, end quote. And that's the standard for frivolous findings, deliberate fabrication. Simply put, quote, the name of the hotel where Mr. Udo and his boyfriend were allegedly caught having sex is not a material element of Mr. Udo's asylum application, end quote. Go on. Well, while the location of the past persecution is relevant to a credibility determination, adverse credibility findings happen every day in immigration court without a frivolous asylum finding also being made. And that location here, quote, is at best ancillary, end quote, to the three core things that an asylum applicant like Mr. Udo must show. That is, that he suffered past persecution, that he was persecuted on account of a protected ground, and that the persecution was by the government or individuals that the government was unable or unwilling to control. Where that past persecution happened is simply not a core material element in this case, according to the Ninth Circuit. So, 
the Ninth Circuit sent it back to the BIA, and presumably the IJ, to re-decide whether, adverse credibility finding notwithstanding, Mr. Uda was eligible for cat protection. And of course, as I mentioned, the frivolous asylum finding was also vacated, and so, while it appears that Mr. Udo won't be getting asylum because of the adverse credibility finding, I also don't see how the IJ can reach a frivolous finding now, at least on this record. Congratulations David C. Casarubius, Alexandra V. Atencio, and Brianna L. Burgos for Mr. Udo. And of course, if anyone's interested in what an excommunication notice from the Council of Traditional Rulers from the Uwit Housing Estate in Nigeria looks like, check out page 10, where you will find it included in the decision in full. And that is Udo V. Garland. Moving on to Matter of German Santos, published by the BIA. Some more controlled substance, crimmigration, from the board. Mr. Santos is from the Dominican Republic and is a lawful permanent resident of the United States. Following a car accident, police found 128 grams of marijuana in plastic bags in his car, and a joint, and an open beer. He was convicted of possession with the intent to deliver a controlled substance in violation of Title 35, Section 780-113A-30 of the Pennsylvania Consolidated Statutes, and two counts of driving under the influence of a controlled substance. Straight DUIs don't make LPRs removable, but controlled substance offenses do under INA Section 237A2BI. An immigration judge found that Mr. Santos's conviction matched that provision, and then denied LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA, finding in particular that Mr. Santos was not truthful when he denied in immigration court that he drove past a red light and hit a woman who was crossing the street because he was intoxicated. Nor did the IJ believe Mr. Santos when he said that police had planted the joint in his car, among other things. But removability first. Whether the Pennsylvania conviction matches a controlled substance offense involves the categorical approach, and, as with many of these type of cases, that argument comes down to whether Pennsylvania criminalizes possession, or for that matter, the intent to distribute, drugs that are not contained in the Federal Controlled Substance Act, or CSA. And as so often is the case, Pennsylvania does criminalize more drugs than the CSA. Or at least as relevant here, it did so at the time of the conviction in 2017. So Mr. Santos's offense is broader than the federal removability provision, which again is governed by the federal CSA. Accordingly, unless the drug a criminal defendant intended to distribute in Pennsylvania is an element of the offense that the prosecution must prove, rather than merely a means of committing the offense that need not technically be proven to convict, Mr. Santos isn't even potentially removable. And indeed again, in 2020, a Pennsylvania Superior Court held that to convict under the statute, the prosecution need not prove the drugs with specificity. That would appear to mean that the drug at issue is a means of committing the offense rather than an element, meaning that no matter the drug Mr. Santos had, he can't be removable, because the IJ and the BIA cannot reach the modified categorical approach and look to the actual conviction documents to see what the drug was. Under the legal game that we play in immigration and in federal court sentencing designed to protect constitutional rights, unless the statute is divisible, the court is limited only to the statute of conviction and not what the defendant or the respondent actually did. That's what the Supreme Court has told us. And that's what it appears was going to happen here. 
But not so, said the BIA. Because that 2020 Pennsylvania Superior Court decision said in full that, quote, the specific identity of the controlled substance is not an element of the offense, and that the identity is only relevant for gradation and penalties based on the relevant schedule, end quote. So that's what this case is about. What happens if, while not a straight element to convict, the drug must still be proven to enhance a criminal penalty in a state? Well, said the BIA, quote, regardless of the state's classification, any fact that establishes or increases the permissible range of punishment is an element of the offense for federal purposes, end quote. Under Pennsylvania law for this statute, it appears that five different types of penalties may apply, depending on the substance possessed and or the quantity. And so, said the BIA, quote, under Pennsylvania law, the imposition of any penalty for a conviction for this offense requires the identification of the controlled substance at issue with sufficient specificity to determine which paragraph applies, end quote. For that reason, the BIA found this statute divisible as to the drug possessed or intended to distribute. And that permits application of the modified categorical approach, which in turn permits a review of the conviction documents, which in this case showed an intent to distribute marijuana, which, as of the time of this podcast, is a listed controlled substance under the federal CSA. That's how the game is played, and so Mr. Santos is removable. The BIA also affirmed the IJ's denial of LPR cancellation, essentially a second chance for most LPRs to be able to keep their green cards. Primarily, the BIA affirmed the adverse credibility finding of the IJ, believing it not clearly erroneous. And an adverse credibility finding will pretty much always tank a discretionary form of relief. I would stop to note, however, that it appears that the IJ relied on a police report in part to discount Mr. Santos's testimony, and recent First Circuit and Ninth Circuit precedent would seem to limit an IJ's ability to rely on a police report when DHS does not call the police officer to testify. Anyway, quote, the immigration judge permissively construed the respondent's minimization of his responsibility for the accident as evidence of a lack of rehabilitation and failure to accept responsibility for his conduct, end quote. Plus, BIA precedent makes the DOIs themselves significant adverse factors. Therefore, the BIA affirmed everything, and Mr. Santos is subject to physical removal. Back to all that categorical approach stuff. Following Matter of Laguerre on episode 91, this is now the third decision in a relatively short period of time whereby the BIA is setting precedent permitting it, in slightly different contexts, to ignore state court precedent regarding, quote, the determination whether a statutory alternative is an element for purposes of the categorical approach, end quote. The BIA cites to nothing on point except itself for such authority. And as I believe I said when the BIA issued Matter of Laguerre, even accepting the BIA's logic, it just seems a bit too far for me, personally. In this case, again, the BIA identifies five different penalties applicable depending on the type or the quantity of drug possessed. Fine. But to me, that indicates only five different types of divisibility for the statute. And each of the five different penalties might encompass, I don't know, let's say 20 drugs. So it seemed to me that another step is required to find Mr. Santos removable. The BIA either needed to state that all of the drugs in the relevant penalty provision were contained in the federal CSA, 
or explain why the five different penalties are themselves internally divisible vis-a-vis the controlled substance possessed. I don't think the BIA could make that latter showing. Without this second element, it seems to me that we're just talking about a lower level of overbreath of the Pennsylvania statute. Tell me why I'm wrong. And that is a matter of German Santos. Wrapping up the episode, we have Alvarez v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on May 5th, 2022. When it rains, it pours. After barely any decisions on the issue during the podcast's lifetime, we have another big decision on INA Section 237A2E removability in back-to-back weeks. Well, kind of. This decision is about the other portion of that statute, INA Section 237A2EII, for having violated a court protection order. And it's a long and complicated decision. Mr. Alvarez is from the Dominican Republic. He entered the U.S. through Puerto Rico in 1984 at 16 years old, and it appears that he's had LPR status for a long time. He has five U.S. citizen children. He's used drugs, and he has arrests and conviction in New York for assault and for violating protective orders, among other things. Specifically at issue here, a conviction from 2001 for first-degree contempt of court in violation of New York Penal Law Section 215.51. Some history on that, he had previously received a conviction because he violated a 1999 protective order by assaulting his then-girlfriend. And yes, if we're going on the victim affidavit of the arrest, it's bad stuff. It was labeled a, quote, severe case of domestic violence, end quote, and he received six months imprisonment with five years probation and institution of another protective order. Mr. Alvarez violated that order in 2001. He received 18 months to three years incarceration and he received more arrests and convictions thereafter. Quote, It took immigration authorities more than 15 years to render the removal decision that Mr. Alvarez now petitions this court to review. End quote. But he was eventually ordered removed under INA Section 237A2EII for having violated a court protection order, a charge that a non-attorney accredited representative initially conceded on his behalf. Later, though, an attorney representing him applied for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA, which an IJ denied as a matter of discretion, and also based on a finding that a later robbery conviction that Mr. Alvarez obtained was an aggravated felony, making him statutorily ineligible for the relief. But the BIA initially sent the case back for further analysis. And on remand, the IJ concluded that under the Second Circuit's Brathwaite v. Garland decision, episode 62 of the podcast. The BIA's decision in a matter of J.M. Acosta was not due deference, and Mr. Alvarez's robbery conviction, which was on appeal at the time, was not final for immigration purposes, so it couldn't be an aggravated felony, because it wasn't final. And then the robbery conviction was eventually reversed on double jeopardy grounds, so it doesn't exist. And it's not directly at issue here in this case. Noteworthy stuff, though, nonetheless. Returning to the issue at hand, the IJ did, however, on remand, again sustain removability under INA Section 237A2EII, relying on the BIA's 2017 decision, Matter of Avshat Co. And then the IJ denied LPR cancellation of removal as a matter of discretion. The BIA affirmed, and to the Second Circuit, we come. 
Boiled down, this case is all about whether the categorical and modified categorical approaches apply to the Section 237A2EII analysis. I believe that the BIA said in matter of Abshat Co. that it does to some of the analysis, but not to others. Don't quote me on it. But in this decision, the Second Circuit went farther than that. It didn't defer to the BIA and held that, quote, the text of Section 237A2EII unambiguously expresses Congress's intent for a circumstance-specific, rather than categorical, or even modified categorical, approach to apply, end quote. And that's seemingly to the entire removability analysis. Here's what they mean and why. Unlike other removability provisions, Section 237A2EII isn't tethered to a conviction. You don't need a conviction for the removability provision to apply. Rather, it simply requires that the non-citizen violate a portion of a protection order that, quote, involves protection against credible threats of violence, repeated harassment, end quote, or some other listed things. That language, quote, necessarily calls for a circumstance-specific inquiry to determine both whether the non-citizen engaged in conduct that violated the protection order under which he was enjoined, and whether his conduct-based violation pertained to a provision of that order involving protection against credible threats of violence, repeated harassment, or bodily injury to a particular person, end quote. So it's really fact-specific, said the Second Circuit. And a protection order is not like a conviction in all circumstances anyway. A removability provision tethered to a conviction will pretty much always require the categorical approach. But this removability provision here is not so tethered. Or, quote, in short, a protection order has no general application. It is necessarily case-specific, end quote. If you're a respondent's counsel, you pretty much always want to be in categorical approach rather than circumstance-specific approach territory. But this holding here, that the circumstance-specific approach applies to Section 237A2EII, apparently aligns, at least in part, with decisions out of the 7th, 3rd, and 9th circuits. It's also fairly consistent with the BIA's own decision in matter of Avshat Co., although again, the 2nd Circuit appears to be going farther here than the BIA was prepared to go. It's a bit confusing. What does this all mean in the Second Circuit? Well, it means that the analysis set forth by the Supreme Court in Nijuan v. Holder applies, meaning that the court can review much more than the mere statute of conviction or statute for the protective order, and it can look to the violation documents themselves to see if the circumstances of Mr. Alvarez's 2001 violation were of part of the protective order that involved protection against credible threats of violence, repeated harassment, or other things listed by the removability provision. Applying the circumstance-specific approach, the Second Circuit found it easily met, as no one is arguing that Mr. Alvarez didn't assault his then-girlfriend, thereby leading the protective order violation. And the whole point of that protective order in this case, per its plain terms, was for, quote, preventing violence or threatening acts of domestic violence, end quote. All of this is very fact and circumstance-specific, which I guess is the Second Circuit's point. But suffice it to say that after this decision, it's easier to remove LPRs in the Second Circuit who violate protective orders. But depending, of course, on what that protective order says and what it was designed to protect against. 
For all of its negative to crimmigration arguments, the Second Circuit does expressly state that it is not deciding, quote, whether a violation of a stay-away or no-contact provision of a protection order involves the sort of protection specified in Section 237A2EII as the BIA has held, end quote. Or put another way, there is still room for arguments, depending on the type of protective order and depending on the violation, in the Second Circuit, for now. But that's about all the good I see. Having found Mr. Alvarez removable, the Second Circuit dismissed his challenge to the BIA's denial of LPR cancellation of removal, stating essentially that Mr. Alvarez, who was pro se, didn't bring colorable challenges permitting circuit review. But also the Second Circuit held that the agency properly balanced factors. And that included, by the way, the BIA's consideration of the robbery arrest, notwithstanding the fact that it didn't ultimately lead to a conviction. One more note before I go. So this whole case actually happened in the context of Mr. Alvarez's inform apoperous motion. Mr. Alvarez was representing himself on petition for review and asking the court for a lawyer to make arguments for him. But according to the court, to get a lawyer, Mr. Alvarez must have a, quote, arguable basis in law or fact, end quote, to succeed. To me, that's a bit circular. People hire lawyers to help them articulate their arguable bases of law or fact. Here, however, and without Mr. Alvarez having an attorney to make the initial arguments, the Second Circuit held that he didn't have good enough arguments to get an attorney. And that is Alvarez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.